Excuse me, is this the reading room? Yes, I'm Saad Manzul. And I'm Travis Howard. And I'm Dr. Marilyn Gaston. Yeah. Yes, this is Reading Room Talk. This is Pressing Play. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. <laughs> we appreciate you making the time, Dr. Gaston. You are a giant. You're a giant in medicine. You're a giant in education. Oh, thank you so much. And a giant in humanity, yeah. of course. So we really appreciate you making the time with us today. Well, thank you so much. But, you know, I have a secret to tell you. <laughs> that I'm doing exactly what I want, was born for. You, you've heard the saying, I'm sure, I'm sure you, you've heard it, that we really should have two birthdays. Mm-hmm. And the first one is the one we all celebrate now, when you hit this world. Mm-hmm. But the second one is when you figure out why you were born. Mm-hmm. And that really is worth celebrating. That, that's the heavy, isn't it? Really yeah, is. I love it. I know, I know that. I, I am doing exactly what I was born to do. Oh, we and love I'm loving every minute of it. Oh, we love we'll watching you do it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. So before you finish, before you figure out exactly what you were doing, you got to take us back to med school. Tell us, what was your toughest class or rotation when you were in medical school? Well, there were two There were two of us. And, and the, the, the second one, was my co- a cousin of mine, as a matter of fact. So we were the only two black in the in the school of four hundred medical students. Wow, two of us. That's wow. right. Okay, and so we just really took care of each other. That was the lucky thing. He protected me from all these these um, jokes that mm-hmm. all the other men wanted to question me. Things like, uh, "Well, Marilyn, tell me what do virgins eat for breakfast?" Are you serious? I'm serious. Uh, it was it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And there were only other there were we started with six women in the first year mm-hmm. and we graduated with three women. Wow. Okay, so it's really it's hard to get in and it's hard to stay there. Yeah. Absolutely. That's another thing. That's why this money is so difficult. In terms of our community and, and, and increasing our um, African American students, mm-hmm. and that's why it's so important that the National Health Service Corps is presented to every any and every African American student that's that's halfway interested in being in the health field at every level. Absolutely. Now the barrier, the the, the cost barrier is huge, and the NHS definitely you know, can provide opportunity for people who are definitely interested in, in uh, primary care to get their school paid for and, right. and basically get a, uh, you know, get a stipend, basically go to school just afterwards. You just have to, you know, spend a little time in an underserved area. Mm-hmm. And it's very rewarding mm-hmm. from the people we've talked to. It's been very, very rewarding, actually. So definitely. Which, you know, there's, there's a huge need for that, too. And, you it's, know, I think most of us going through medical school feel this pool, feel this this uh, influence to do primary care. We, we know what it would mean for our mother, father, sister, brother to see a black doctor. And, yes. Uh, so there's, all, there's always that pool, I think. And, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. And, and I even think, and this is based on the literature, because there have been studies to show that black people do better with black doctors. That's right. That's right. Okay. 
And I think we would begin to tip away these disparities if we had more of a, a, a staffing of black people taking care of black people. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. And we can see it just in our day to day. Like, you know, we feel more comfortable with African-American physicians and, you know, we've talked to people who've said that, you know, they prefer African-American physicians because you know that they had to, had to work a lot harder to get there. So. It, yeah, absolutely. It, absolutely. Now, you know, the women, the women were real low too when I was in school. Yeah. Yes, they, but they have really increased. And now the question is, we need to know how they have done that. Maybe there's some, some clues that, that would help us get more black kids. Absolutely. In. Yeah, I think <laughs> a lot of it's the information. So, you know, we're glad that you're here with us to kind of give us the information and make sure people know that it's, it's possible. Like if you have that interest and you have the will and desire to do it, you can definitely do it. So, yeah, you can do it. There's no question about it. Yeah. And you don't have to be the company. Go ahead, Travis. Oh, no, I was just going to say, this is all interesting on the heels of, of our recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. Yes. When you talk about healthcare disparities and needing a little more representation, um, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, you know, not to get overly political, but we, you know, we need black doctors. Yeah. We do. Yeah. There's no question about it. Yeah, despite what and we said. mean, we, well, the women doctors have really increased. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And uh, and I, I they I know they had to get some some help financially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that if uh, if we can really get them into the National Health Service Corps, so they pay for, um, and they set for the whole four years residency, everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. As long and, and, and it's in primary care, and that's where we need them. No question about it. Absolutely. Now, I always worry about the black people in the rural areas because mm, right. they are really hurting. They are really hurting. That's, that's very so true. true. You know, in the urban areas, we can have better access because we got more medical schools, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the rural areas, not only the poor rural areas are really hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so true. But we need them there. We need them in the Mississippi Delta, mm -hmm. everywhere. We need the Hispanics along the U.S.-Mexico uh, border. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They need the care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, access is still a major problem. So this, this program is very important for us and our communities in a lot of ways. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, so anytime you want me to talk about it, I'll be ready. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Well, we want to talk to you about you today, though. So tell us. So tell us where are you from? Okay, all right. And where were you born? And where's um, your family from? I was born from uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, I was born in the uh, in the pro in the bed in the project because my birthday is January 31st and that January 31st maybe because it was my birthday mm -hmm. there was this huge blizzard in <laughs> Cincinnati Ohio oh, wow. and nothing was moving the buses couldn't move the taxis couldn't move the ambulance couldn't get to her my dad was stranded out in Marymount Inn and so she was by herself in a project bed delivering me by herself Wow. Can you imagine that? The first baby. She was scared. And I asked her, were, were you scared? She said, I was scared to death. Wow. 
But anyway, I jumped out and I said, here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Cincinnati, Ohio. (laughs) Oh, I love it. No stopping you. That's awesome. And I'm here to make a change. (laughs) You already knew. You already knew what you were going to be doing. That's awesome. Well, I will tell you just quick, just quickly. Yeah. No, I didn't know then, but I did when my mom died. Uh, a preventable death. Now, you know, a lot of our deaths are premature. Mm-hmm. We're, we're very, the CDC defines premature death as uh, before the age of 65. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we also are the, have the greatest preventable death. Now, that, that is something we're trying to change with our, our uh, program with mainly black women, you know, giving them the, uh, the health, the preventive health measures that they really need to be doing. And they need to be taking care of themselves. We women are so busy taking care of Lottie Dottie and everybody that we're not taking care of ourselves. And we're trying to change that. Yeah, I love that. That's so true. That's so true. But that's what we're we're doing. I love it. So So tell me. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so tell us, so like you kind of, were you always interested in medicine or like growing up like in elementary school and high school? Oh, you... yeah, absolutely. Well, she died when I was a preteen. Okay. And, and I was, uh, and in fact, she, her hemoglobin went from 13 or 14 down to two. Mm. She was bleeding to death. But she never really went to the doctor because we couldn't afford it. You know the story. No insurance. She was making sure that our father, I have a brother, and the two of us got medical care. But she didn't take care of herself. She took care of everyone. When I found all that out, when I found, because she told me that, why? Because I said, why why didn't you go to the doctor? Mm -hmm. You know, before she died. And she said, you know, we didn't have the money. And it was more important for you all to do it. But anyway, I knew that I was going to be a doctor for poor people. And I had done that my whole career. And that was why I know I was born. And I loved my life. I wouldn't change it for anything at this point. Wow. So at any point. So I was able to do it. So now I, I, I'm in, I'm in uh, high school. And so I'm talking to counselors and teachers and everything about being a doctor. What are they saying? And they're telling me, oh, you can't be a doctor. They said, first of all, you're a woman. They're not admitting women to medical school. Mm. And you're Negro. That was the Negro era. Mm -hmm. You know, we had different eras. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Anyway, so um, I would go home and I'd cry to mom. And I wish and I hope all the mothers and fathers are doing just what she did. She said, Marilyn, I keep telling you, do not listen to those people. Don't listen to them. Because they what you make up your mind to do, you do it. Yes. You don't give up, you don't give out, and you don't give in until you accomplish it. And if you can't get in the front door, you go in the back door. You can't get in the back door, you climb in the window. If you don't have a seat at the table, as one of our black heroines said, you bring your own chair. There you go. That's awesome. That's exactly So, you know, that was that was just drummed into both my brother and my head. 
because everything we said we wanted to do, you can do it. You can do whatever you want to do. You make your mind up to it. You stay focused and stop fooling around. That's what you're really focused on. I mean, she gave me the blueprint for the success because it is hard. It is hard. Medical school is hard, period, and it's certainly hard for people of color. Absolutely. So how did you do it? How did you get yourself into undergrad? And how did you get yourself into med school? Well, that's what we did. You know, I, I went to summer. Uh, I worked in the summer and I worked in the hospitals and the clinics. I, I went to a healthcare setting mm-hmm. so that I could meet the people that were running it. Mm-hmm. So I had people that gave, I had doctors, the heads of things that gave me recommendations to get into medical school. Wow, so you and made the like that. I made the connection. And, you know, mom told me, she taught me that. She went and got a job at the hospital and then got a job for me every summer. So I got to know everybody in that hospital. That's awesome. Wow. So she really laid the yeah, so you, for you. And your, you and your brother? No, my brother. He, he was a teacher. And, and we both worked for poor people. Because have you heard of... Um, Upward Bound, yeah, he's been directors oh, of wow, yeah. yeah, so yeah. we were both working like the devil in poor communities, trying to help our folks, you know? Yeah. But we both loved it. We both loved it and still do because he's still working too from time to time. Oh, you guys are both giving back. That's awesome. That's, that's amazing. So, yeah. I was going to say you were in med school and like, did you know that you kind of want to do pediatrics or like how did, how did like the whole process of, you know, choosing a specialty go for you? Well, I just knew, I, I just love children. I've loved them ever since I found one. And so I, there's no question. I knew that there was, the, and I knew they were sick and they needed the same kind of help the adults did mm-hmm. in terms of, um, of care. The access to care was very clear to me early because when you're working in those settings, you really learn the problems. And so um, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I'm so happy. As a matter of fact, since I've had this small nonprofit, I retired and still working with a clinical psychologist, a black woman. Mm-hmm. And so we deal with both the mind and the body and the spirit. You need all three of those if you're going to live in health and wellness. That's and, right. Yep, yeah, absolutely. I knew you would agree. We're all talking the same song. We know that song. <laughs> exactly. what, what has to happen to change it? And we know we can deal with these disparities if we just really put put ourselves to to the grindstone and do it. Absolutely, absolutely. Can you tell us the name of the nonprofit and also who you're working with? Yeah, I'm working with Dr. Gail Porter, who's a clinical psychologist trained at Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And um, we have, uh, well, the first thing we always do, and I know you all have done that too, is... Um, you talk to the people. I learned this after I had graduated from school, and I ran right to the poor communities. I graduated, got my diploma, and went to work. Wow. And I learned in medical school, of course, to go ask people what they need. Don't just go in there and tell them, tell them what they need. No, that's not the way to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they always told me exactly what they needed and how we could get it. So I was busy working in community health centers. I, I grew up in community health centers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so 
So I developed a whole kind of posse of people doing that, that uh, we worked together. That's how we all did the sickle cell program mm-hmm. and have a successful trial and, and really have success at, at uh, proving that prophylactic penicillin would save yes. the baby lives. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, they, you know, back then, babies were born with sickle cell disease and nobody knew that they had sickle cell disease. Exactly. So nobody did, knew their parents you, had the trait. So, how did you first like learn about sickle cell disease like in, in your training? Okay, in my training, I didn't learn it in medical school. Mm-hmm. Did you all learn about sickle cell disease in medical school? Well, we did because of you. Yes, I did. You did? <laughs> right. Well, because and we of saw you. Oh, the Cincinnati. You know, some training you can go a whole four years in residency and never see it. We knew sickle cell disease very well after finishing Cincinnati, and I have to agree with Todd. Oh, I yeah, know you had a Cincinnati. Excuse me, I forgot that. Yes, yeah, Cincinnati. <laughs> but they weren't teaching it when I was there. See, I was there a little earlier. I was there in in the uh, in in, in uh, 1960. A little bit. I was. I I didn't learn it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when I went for my uh, internship, mm-hmm. I decided to go to a big, huge um, urban hospital where you see everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because <clears throat> you know the feeling when you, you as, a, as a young doctor, just fresh out of school, you're scared mm-hmm. to death at first. And you mm-hmm. sure don't want to see, so you want to be able to be intelligent and help people and and know what you're seeing or know how to find out what to do. Absolutely. You know, that's also important to you if you've never seen it. And so so my first night um at uh Philadelphia General Hospital. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia General Hospital. Huge, typical urban, a lot of black people, everybody poor, black and white. Okay. So I'm sitting there and a young teenage couple come in with this baby. And the baby is screaming his head off. He has a temper of 104. He's miserable. His hand is swollen and red. Mm-hmm. And all, oh, it's just awful. So, you know, my quest, first question, not knowing about sickle cell disease, was did someone hurt the baby? Did they accidentally step on the, on the baby's hand? Did it get slammed in the door? You know, on and on and on. I thought the baby, it, it really looked traumatized. Mm-hmm. So I said, I called the uh, the social worker and said, you know, I'm worried about this baby. I'm going to admit him um, and get some x-rays and see if there are other fractures. And, you know, the work up for him and abuse baby. Mm-hmm. And just as I was doing the admission, my senior came and said, Marilyn, did you look at the blood smear? And I said, oh, my goodness, let me go look at blood smear. All those sickle cells were right there. And I felt so bad because I had asked them all those questions, and they knew that I was I was worried that, that they were beating the baby up and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I felt terrible. And I apologized and uh, and told them because he, he said, and I went right right to the library and read about it. And I decided right there, then and there, in the ER of Philadelphia General Hospital, I was going to become an expert in sickle cell disease. Wow! Wow! Isn't that amazing? So that's what I, that's how I have. So I've learned all along the way, and I've you know, 
have been surrounded by people who know sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, now, and my, you, my, uh, and how did you start go ahead. doing, you started doing research, you started like kind of focusing on uh, patients with sickle cell or what were your next steps at that point? Well, my next step were, were first of all, I had to get my pediatric training where, where I did learn a lot about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I was, uh, then I, I started a clinic at Children's, at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital for sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. And I had all the back, anybody could come to it. And I got some, some uh, money that, with some contacts that I had in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the students in medical, I mean, the resident students and the medical students um, would come to the clinic and we were all learning about sickle cell disease. There's no question about it. We learned how to test mm-hmm. and everything and then what to do. And we were seeing them at Children's Hospital then. You know, that Children's Hospital was excellent. And I learned a lot about sickle cell disease there. And then I absolutely wrote a proposal for an NIH proposal. No, that I'm jumping ahead. But anyway, that was what I was doing uh, to get through my residency. Yeah. So now it's 1972, and I'm out in, in a community health center and yada, 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 seeing sickle cell patients. And um, it's 1972, and Nixon is the president. So I'm one night sitting there with my husband, my two kids, and he's doing the uh, State of the Union address. Mm-hmm. And uh, I woke up right when he said, I'm targeting two diseases for more funding, more attention, and they both need a lot of help. And uh, he said, the first one is cancer, and the second one is sickle cell anemia. Mm, I said, wow. what? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even believe that Nixon knew, knew uh, what it was called. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so I was just floored. So um, my phone was ringing off the hook. People call my friends and family come. And he said, uh, uh, Nixon said, this is a disease of, um, I think he said, well, no, I think we were through with the Negro era. I think we were in the black. This was 19, 1972. Was that, that, I think that was the black era. Okay. Because yeah. remember, the, the civil rights movement had started in 65. Remember? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we were, we were in the black period, I think. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Period, yeah. yeah. So that was really something. Wow. And it really got into the black community. Everybody was talking about it. Hollywood, mm-hmm. they were making, they made two movies about sickle cell disease. The only problem is the information, a lot of it was faulty because they didn't have enough information that was accurate. Interesting. And so um, one of the physicians from Detroit, Charlie Whitten, knew right away that we had to, Start advocating 
for civil service. We had to educate um, educate our community. We were absolutely had to train all of our our healthcare providers because they didn't know they hadn't learned about sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. Remember, 1910 was when the first sickle cell disease hit the literature about this sickle this this uh, disease mm-hmm. that black people had where their red cells were sickles, and we started to learn about it. And then in 1965, well, it really hit. It really hit in 1972 when he did that State of the Union address. Everybody knew it. And so a lot started happening. Um, and our institute at NIH, the National uh, Heart, Lung, and Blood, mm-hmm. uh, was assigned the task of developing some sickle cell programs. And so a friend of mine who is, has been like my mentee, my boss, my sister, Dr. Clarice Reed, that's another name you need to know. Mm, shout out. Because, huh? You got that one, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So um, the money was really given to, to the sickle program from the um, director of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And a lot of the... Um, hematologists got involved with this and it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so I had realized early on, cause we, we had to, when they got that money, we were still Clarice and I hadn't come together and I was, I got a sickle cell center, um, that money for a sickle cell center at the children's, um, hospital there in Cincinnati, Ohio, to start a, a big, huge center. And always, when NIH was, um, this is, you tell everybody that you know, that when NIH puts an announcement out that they are interested in something, you run and get the money. Because mm. <laughs> they are going to have a lot of, of really good centers that make a difference. I mean, whether it's cancer, whether whatever you're interested in. And for the first time in the world, we were going to have some sickle cell uh, programs for kids and for adults. And I had always wanted to deal with the issue of the septicemia in in our babies Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. fact that they were always born and nobody even knew. And they they would get the the infection and die Mm -hmm. rapidly, as a matter of fact. Um, and nobody even knew they had sickle cell disease or their parents had the trait. So we knew we had to stop that. Right. Wow. And so we, we pulled together hematologists and, and um, pediatricians and, oh, everybody. And that, that's the, that is the key to this. The key to mounting a national program, I learned this myself, that you, especially with us having a black national program, we needed everybody. We needed everybody. And I had become friends with Louis Stoke. Stoke from mm-hmm. Cleveland. You remember him? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was, oh, I dearly loved him. He was like a second daddy to me. I mean, when I when I had problems, um, in, with, problems with anything in the government, I went to him and he would just hold my hand and guide me through it. 
and that was just a, another reason I could get things done successfully. That's awesome. Because it, it, it was awesome, I'm telling you. So at the same time, we did know we had to set up centers that did education, that did counseling, because we need a lot of people had to be educated, and these parents. And so not only were they was there a smooth educational time and, and testing, so they understood the uh, the prevalence or their chance of getting if they both had the traits. What were their chances? So 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 anyway. There was a lot of counseling going on. Um, and in the meantime, I'm not sure how I found out about the Black Panthers, but somehow that surfaced because we were all, when Nixon had said that, mm-hmm. they were like, how did, how did Nixon know about the sickle cell disease? I mean, we were all baffled. How did they know? And then what, what made him decide to even try to help black people? Because, you know, we, he, we, well, I won't. I won't say more about that. Yeah, oh, I hear you. <laughs> Go ahead. This is true. I'll shut up. Because he did make the announcement. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he didn't, he didn't make the money available. The National Heart, Lung, and Blood group, mm-hmm. um, where we were working, and that's where Clarice and I were working. She was the director of the... Um, Sickle cell, the, the branch, and I was the deputy director. Wow. And anyway, at this point, things started rolling. But anyway, um, so you heard about the uh, the guy that that really developed the sickle cell anemia um, program. That was the advocacy group that would go up on the hill and lobby for sickle cell disease. Very important centers yeah. and. Yeah, very important. Do not forget. See, that's another thing. Whenever you're starting something, you want every, you want the legislators, you want the, the all of the national medical organizations, mm-hmm. you want the um, the NMA, the AMA. You want everybody. Okay, all the advocacy groups. And so, um, and I was always down there on Lou Spokes' doorstep telling him what was doing. And so he was our big advocate on the Hill mm-hmm. when, when all the sickle cell disease jumped out and everybody was wondering what to do with it. And we developed a plan, a plan together. He was very involved. And it was so, the black community, let me tell you this. This is something I learned too. This was real important. Because another reason we were so successful was that once the black community was convinced this was, quote, our disease. They all came forward to help. They came forward with money. They came forward with, with plans to do things. The cab, the, the, uh, cab drivers in various communities were giving the families that had sickle cell disease kids they they were there. They took them to the hospital. Hospitals. They took them to the ERs. Everything was free. Wow. They could, they were doing all. And now, can you imagine that? It was really down at the grassroots level. Everybody was involved. Oh yeah, we're going to do this. Hollywood was making these movies mm-hmm. that were wrong, but everywhere. But anyway, wow. can you tell us we about the, uh, I was going to say, can you just tell us about what the Black Panthers were doing as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. What they were doing, I'm not sure how they found out about it. So now let me first tell you that when you get to, have, have any of you been to the um, the um, um, African American Museum here in D.C.? Oh, yes. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, the history. Oh, mm. Have you been here? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you've seen the, the exhibit on the top floor with the Black Panthers and sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. Did you yeah, know? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's, there's so much to take in. I've been a couple of times. Yeah, um, it is hard. I'm trying to remember some details around that display, but, um, you know, it's an amazing place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, they did a lot in communities. They didn't get credit for all the pictures showed them with guns and everybody was afraid of them. And But they really did a lot in mm-hmm. in uh, poor communities. And this was one of the things they did. They were they were testing people on the street corner. Yeah. Wow. They had wow. free clinics where they were testing and providing counseling. Uh, we helped educate them and and develop uh, books for people to take home and pamphlets and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that was they played a major role with that, and they helped get the word out not only in Oakland and on the West Coast, but all across the country. Mm-hmm. And they played it. It was wonderful to see. And you know, the preachers were talking about it. I mean, I had never seen a movement. This was a literal movement. And we could never have done this. We could never have done this without the help of everybody. And, you know, Stokes was, when he, when he knew everything we were doing, because I was always reporting to him. And whenever we need some money, I tell him that too. And he was very helpful. So we had, we had the politicians on the Hill. Mm-hmm. We had the churches where we got mm-hmm. the word out, educated everybody and tested them. Musicians were all involved. The transportation people were all involved. It was something to behold. So then we we decided that we were going to do a trial. And of course, I was responsible for putting all that together. And I pulled, I pulled 25 um, what am I talking about? academic censors to participate. All the black programs were in it. And um, and so we we ran, we developed it. We developed protocols. I can't even tell you everything. The first step, we had to start doing newborn screening just for those programs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we did it. And the trial, trial was supposed to go for two years. We thought it would take that long to get the babies in. But no, these families with these babies, they took them right to the, to the health, I mean, to the university centers. Wow. We did them in universities. The hematology programs were in charge of it. And I was running the meetings and everything, and that was something because there was always an issue of racism. Mm. Especially, well, first of all, this this district with the, uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, the trial of penicillin, mm-hmm. and 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 listen, the the pharmaceutical company gave us penicillin for free. Okay. Can you imagine that? Wow! <laughs> I mean, everybody came out. They, I mean, we had a lot of help with this, and so anyway, we it went so well, and 
after about I think it was it was after a year. It was a year. It was a year. After a year mm-hmm. there were it, there was no question that the penicillin kids um did well. They they were fine, they're living. And the ones without penicillin died. And they were in a center they knew. Now see the difference is initially those babies weren't even tested and been tested. Mm-hmm. But they were tested for, for the, to enter the trial. And the, the, the family knew that they had sickle cell disease. They had instructions. The least fever they got, they had to grab this baby and run to the hospital right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the penicillin group, they were saved and because they didn't get infected. And it was wonderful. Okay. So we, we published it. We had the lead article in the New New England Journal of Medicine about this. And we were just, so I ran with the article down the, down the soaps and I ran it as I was, I was just, we've all done it, we did it, we did it, we did it, oh my God. Do you know he was so excited? And I'm, I don't know who was more excited, he or me or <laughs> on his staff, and we were all running around. Hallelujah, how are we gonna save these babies? Yeah. Anyway, mm. so, do you know what he did? He, he said, okay, I'm going to get some legislation. He said, what do you need to do now? I said, we now need to get newborn screening in this whole country and really internationally. Everybody should be testing mm-hmm. the black babies for, for uh, the disease. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay, do you know what? This was unheard of. I wish I had documented it better and written an article about it. He passed, he got the law written and passed and programs starting in three months. Wow. Three months? Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine that? That's why I'm telling you. Everybody has to get involved. That's exactly right. So then, okay, then with the publication, there was all this. NIH has um, a mechanism, which I think is, is really cool, that once something's been discovered to really help clinically, the problem is, in the past, the, the, the publication wouldn't be read and just be sitting in the library. And so nothing would happen clinically. So they have a mechanism where they, they take money and pull all the experts dealing with that disease together and have whatever conferences they need. They fund everything so that it is the, 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 the physicians, the nurses, everybody they come together and decide how you're going to get it to the bedside, okay? So we had our our conference. It was well attended. Everybody came. Do you know, you usually can make the decision in two days. It took us, it wasn't quite a week, because these folks didn't want to test every baby. We said, no, we need to test every baby, okay? Not just the black babies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They said, no, we can look at them. We can. He said, no, you can't look at them. You can't look at a newborn baby, whether they're black or not. Wow. I mean, we went round and round, round and round, round and round. And then finally, they agreed. And that's when they got the money. Because Stokes said, you're not going to get any money unless you're testing everybody. Mm-hmm. Getting them, getting them. That's right. <laughs> oh, wow. But now everybody, everybody is testing. And, you know, it's just wonderful that it's working so well. 
But then also we had a problem because, you know, sickle cell disease and the treatment of it, you have to know what you're doing. And you really have to have a hematologist in these out places, these uh, far away, poor to access places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it took a while to really figure that out because what good is it if you have this baby that's, that's living and they're not getting immunized and nobody knows what to do when they get a fever in the middle of the night and all that kind of stuff. But it, it was fine. And wow. so that's, that's, that's the sickle cell story. That's an awesome. Well, I tell you what, you have changed so many lives, you know, and if you're screening for it, then you better know what to do. You can do with it afterwards. So that's um, right. The, the waves and the ripples and, and the and the impact that, that the research and the work that you and Congressman Stokes, everything that y'all did is just it's just amazing. You know, we're, we're living. So many people have it. You said 1910 was the first year it was written in the literature. So many yeah. people suffered from the time from that time until the time you did your research. You, you know, your landmark paper. It's just this yeah. impact and it's, it's crazy. I didn't know that when you were sitting across from me at Cincinnati. <laughs> I didn't know that. That, I, I, that would that would have been you know that's an inspiring story. That would have I, I wish I had known that at the time. Well, let me just make another point too because this was interesting. That the whole concept of taking care of families that have a, a sickle cell anemia baby. You know, you have to get them educated. They have to be counseled. Um, and pretty soon, you know, some you, you will run into the daddy or somebody. It's the, 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 the trait. You don't have two, two you, you don't have two parents that both are both traits. You know, your daddy's not your daddy, but your daddy don't know. Mm-hmm. You know that song, that song in the Caribbean that they all sing? <laughs> so, you know, that presents a problem. Because now you're getting ready to make, perhaps have a marriage get all messed up because of the, of the difference. And, okay, so that's a problem with all genetic diseases. Yeah, but it's the same. So, yeah. we how to do that. It was, there were a lot of big social problems that surfaced. Yeah. With the with the acknowledgement and the knowledge of, of this disease for families. And that was a major one. And so we developed ways to deal with it. And they they became models for a lot of those other genetic diseases. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yes. So that was a plus. Yeah, so all of us as genetic people working with sickle cell disease and also cystic fibrosis and all of them. That, that we uncovered some ways to do that sociologically. Also, their insurance started going way up, sky high. Mm. So we had to deal with the insurance companies and go down and have education sessions all over to talk to them so that they're educated about the disease. Because, see, the main thing that was a problem was people didn't understand the difference between sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. And also the different diseases, you know, SS, Okay, you know, that was a problem. So we had a lot of educating to do with insurance companies and schools. We had to go train people to go to schools and tell them because when you hear sickle cell crisis, oh, my God, is, you know, the teacher is scared half to death. What kind of crisis is going to happen? And what should I do? Yeah, and is it contagious and all of that. So the social issues 
were really overwhelming for a while. Wow. But it also got all the geneticists educated about things and on the ball. So it was good. I just, we all feel very good about the cooperation. Mm -hmm. We couldn't have done it without everybody focused on it. And I won't, then I'm going to say this and then I'm going to stop. Since I saw what happened with us in sickle cell disease, as quote, our disease, even though, you know, the Hispanic Mm -hmm. and the, um, the Muslim communities, it's all over. Wherever you have malaria, you're going to have sickle cell disease. Correct. Okay. Dr. Gaston, I always like to ask, and I'm so happy I had this opportunity to do so, what was the most difficult thing that you faced over your career thus far, and how did you did you overcome it? How did you get through that difficulty? The most difficult for me as a person is the loss of a patient. Mm-hmm. And early on, um, I lost patients with sickle cell disease. Yeah. And um young ones, baby. Oh yeah. But I had I had a seventeen year old that had been my patient from birth. I mean, you know, I knew her and her family very well and it just about killed me when she died. She did have overwhelming septicemia at that age. Mm-hmm. But it was pneumococcus and she had some other things going on. Wow. And uh, it, it was very just the loss of any patient was just very hard for me to deal with. It just was. That everything that I did as, as a leader, first I was seen as a black woman. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and you know, and black men have it too, but I, I really think, see, see, we have the double in terms of mm-hmm. that we're not only are we black, but we're, we're female. Mm-hmm. And so that has been as hard. Starting in, in my high school, when they, they said, no, you can't do this, mm-hmm. um, that just about killed me. And thank God I had a mother said, no, don't even pay them any money. They don't know. They don't know who's getting into medical school. They don't know any of that for sure. The director of the Bureau of Primary Health Care. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Surgeon General. So that was difficult. I'm glad you brought that up. To say that they wish it was a man. Yeah. Too bad. And 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 uh, I won't say half the staff, but a lot of the the white men left. And the reason I said, well, tell me what you said you're you're not satisfied with, and then I'll try to fix it. We'll see what we can do. And they said, oh, you can't fix it because I don't think you 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 can even have to run this job. You can't run this bureau. Wow. And. Uh, I said, I just have to tell you, just so that you know, I don't think you, you were sitting. I said, well, why, why do you think? He said, well, you know, it's hard. This year is big. It's hard. You have a lot of problems. You have this and that. And then I said, oh, that sounds like a, a things I've already solved. And, <laughs> That's right. But, you know, you, again, you see a whole lot of black folks that are, are in leadership roles that are succeeding every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just takes the, the, the focus, the determination, the will, and you can say, you know, it exists, but I don't care. I'm going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the attitude you have to have. You have to have. You know, I was just going to ask, how long were you in that role as the director? The Bureau of Primary Health Care? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah 30 years. Wow. 30 years. Wow. 
You should you shook him off. You shook some haters off for thirty years, Doctor. <laughs> thirty years, baby. Wow. Shook those haters. Oh, well, I had yeah. I, You know, I always tell me when people want to give me an award, I say, you know, I did not. I want to remind you that I did not do this alone. I had teams of people that helped, and and again, I wish I could give them all awards. There's no question about it. And I tell them. I have a, a a story I like to tell because I just it just so touches me. This is a true story. You all know about Special Olympics, don't you? Yes. Okay, you you uh you know this was a true one. This was this really happened. Mm-hmm. They were the little kids lined up. You know the little kids with cerebral palsy and everything, and they line up and the gun goes off and they're all really geared up to run and be the winner of the whatever whatever mm-hmm. race. And so they start off running and a little boy with cerebral palsy falls down. At which point a little girl who was next to him who also has cerebral palsy stopped and went back and she kissed him on the head and she said that's okay. You can run. You can still make it. You can still make it. And so she was trying to help him get up. Mm-hmm. The other kids that were running turned around and saw her helping him. And they turned around and went back to help too. Wow. And they all held hands and they ran to the 50 yard line That's all awesome. together. And the whole stadium stood up. The whole stadium stood up, yeah. and they all were declared the winners. Wow! And that's how we have to do it. Wow. We just—I would like to see. This is where I got the block. This is what I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. You know, hypertension is our disease too. Right. And I've been trying to figure out how we can have a national campaign around hypertension, and with her, we had the kind of response that we had with sickle cell disease, mm-hmm. that, you know, playing the disease is our disease, we're going to fix it. Because we have people with hypertension dying needlessly. So my next, my next campaign is going to be <laughs> hypertension, if I can figure out yeah. exactly how we're going to do it. But, so uh, but we have black women, it is. And we have these midwife black women that, that we see in our, with our, our projects. Mm-hmm. And they come in there, and these are women that have been diagnosed. They know they have blood pressure. They're supposed to be uh, taking their medicine. They're supposed to be doing all this other stuff. And they're dying from heart disease, stroke. You know, hypertension is number one risk factor for stroke. Right. And they need dying needlessly. So this is our message. This is our our goal with having this project, this this uh, small nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Well, well, two years ago, we got a major award from uh, you know February's Heart Month, yes. and the um, yeah the National Heart, Lung, and Blood from NIH and the American Heart Association have this huge event. Thousands of people all across the country go to it that are doing, doing, working in the heart disease program. Yeah, the Red Dress Award. Um, and so they have that. And, you know, they give three awards. 
Um, the first winner was the winner of Weight Watchers. She was number one. We were number two with uh, the the way we have taught our women to control their blood pressure mm. and um, and decrease, uh, you know, unnecessary, premature, and preventable deaths. And the third one I've forgotten. But anyway, what was so amazing was that the whole group, I mean, they had thousands and thousands of people to think. And they stood up after we talked, and they they gave us a standing ovation. And as we were coming down from the stage, all the people at NIH ran up and grabbed us. They said, we have never had a standing ovation before, and we've been doing this for years. And we said, you didn't know. We'll come back and do it again. (laughs) (laughs) With the encore, exactly. (laughs) So (laughs) So we're really proud of that. We really were. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you making the time for us. And we just have one more question for you. We just want to ask you now, like, what would you tell someone who's like struggling and, you know, undergrad or high school or med school trying to make it through? What would you tell them to help themselves, uh, you know, make it through? Well, thank you for that question. But first of all, thank you for having having me do uh, a podcast for you. I'm really honored as a request, and, and, and I thank you. Because we need to do this and get the word out over and over and over in our community. So thank you for what you're doing, okay? Oh, no. And I hope you ask me again. Oh, we're well, all, we're call you all the time. <laughs> well, I hope so. That would be fun. I would love it. Well, the first thing, they need some help. So I would try to get them a good tutor, um, somebody that can help. And, and they need some self-confidence because once you get into that spiral or you even, you know, for a long time, you know, you sit there, a lot of students. And, you know, I also had doubts. It was very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, the, uh, the uh, tutors also not only help them with the content, but I think they help give them uh, an idea that they can do it. Yes. Uh, increases their, their self-esteem, and that's what, that's what is lost so often, especially in our community, because they are told, like everybody, like I said, I, I was, that, uh, yeah, you can't do it and for all these reasons. And those are there, but you can do it if you stay focused and just if you're determined and you're you're trying, I'm going to do this. Now, if you're wishy-washy and you're not sure, if you have a problem saying, well, I'm not sure I want to do this, then you might not be in the right place because you really have to have to be clear if you're going to work because you do have to work hard now. I mean, I don't have to tell you guys because you've been through it, too. So if there's a question that you don't think you want to do this the rest of your life, you might as well make it soon. That's true. And I, you know, I just want to, I want to take a minute and and just a shout out to your mother. You know, your mother who planted that seed. Oh yeah. Don't listen to those people. If there's something Mm -hmm. you want to do, you better do it. And and you you don't let go of that. And I can see I can hear it in your voice and I can hear it in your mission. Even at 84, 84 years old and, and tackling <laughs> hypertension and, and wanting another initiative. You want another movement mm. and you want community and all these things to help people. And I, I just, I love that. So, um, um you know, thank you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> 
absolutely. Because my brother, my brother is the one. Oh, I wish you could hear it. He says, Marilyn, why do you? And he says this is in front of large groups of people. Why do you tell people that you're retired? He says, <laughs> you know you're working harder than you've ever worked in your life. <laughs> and I wish you would come and sit down next to me and rest. <laughs> but he's looking out for me but anyway oh, wow. so you all this is a delightful evening and I thank you again oh, no, thank and you I enjoy so it thank you guys so much for listening we appreciate it oh, yeah. this was awesome this is wonderful. Oh, we learned too much too much too much and we're going to have her back we're going <laughs> to find her we're going to find you we're going to find you so thank you so much until oh, next time God. stay low and stay keep low. firing keep firing Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your pods. Hey, one more. Let me tell you one more story, real quick. Yeah. Because you all kept you, you all like the question of what was the toughest thing to deal with. Yeah. Now you heard you heard my daughter say that we wrote a book called Prime Time, The African-American Woman's Complete Guide to Midlife Health and Wellness. And so we had a lawyer that was taking us, that went to New York and was taking us to those publishing companies. Okay? So the first three told us, they first they trotted out the people that were going to make the decision. They were all women. That was good. But they were all like in this 21, 22, fresh out of school, didn't know anything. So they all refused it. These were three different companies. And the reason they said, they said, black women do not read books like this. What? And we looked at her and we said, did you notice that we're black women? (laughs) Did you notice that? That we're older black women. And we read books, we read all kinds of books. Wow. Black women read all kinds of books. Oh, they didn't want and those books. And finally, that's right. Finally, we went to Random House. That was the fourth one. Mm-hmm. And a black woman, a black woman was the head of the division there in Random House mm-hmm. that our book was going to go in. And she said, I want this book now. Mm-hmm. She said, this is revolutionary. We know, we've never had a book like this. And we're so glad that you wrote this and on and on and on. And guess what? It became an essence bestseller. Wow. So you know we had you know we had to remind those people what they said. <laughs>